0: The Chinese Communist Party knows it can never match our innovation. As state-owned enterprise. It's an authoritarian regime It is a government-centric focus. Much of the high-end industrial base inside of China is based on stolen technology or technology purchased from other nations. It's not homegrown.
1: That's former U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo speaking about Chinese innovation in December 2020. Maybe his point of view is extreme, but behind his words lies an enduring impression that China's economic success has largely been the result of persistent and sophisticated imitation rather than breakthrough innovation. This may have been true in the past, but is it still the case today? I'm Michael Wade, a professor at the IMD Business School in Lausanne, Switzerland, and this is Management Under the Microscope. In each episode, we take a widely held assumption about business, management or leadership, and we put it to the test, giving you an inside look at the facts behind the myths and helping you to become a better, more informed manager. In this episode, we'll explore whether Chinese firms today are competing through imitation or innovation, and what we can learn from what they are doing. Let's start by looking back at China's remarkable growth from a demographically large but economically minor country in the 1970s to the global superpower that it is today. What role did innovation play in this journey?
2: I think this is a very interesting thing because I've been asked the same question a few times already. and to me to address this question we'd better to understand from two point of view. So the first thing is the c- capacity to innovate. So are you able to be innovate? And then the other question is the incentives to innovate. So why do we innovate?
1: That's Lu Shan, an author and researcher at IMD's Global Center for Digital Business Transformation.
2: I think a country's capacity uh, to innovate really depends on many factors, including, you know, the IND investment, the, the quality of the workforce, the talent, basically, and the manufacturing capacity, the market scaling ability, among many others. Um, I think Ch- China is improving in those areas. But here I want to discuss more is about the second point. Why do we innovate? So basically the incentives to innovate. Imagine uh, 30 years ago, we, we've seen many Chinese companies were doing only one thing. Copying from the West, they were trying to making lower quality product, but also at a relatively lower cost, and that can make those companies very profitable because within China at the time there were no other substitution, so they can doing a very good good business.
1: Jai Shan talks about two factors: the
2: capacity
1: to innovate and the incentive to innovate. Let's look at capacity first. A number of criticisms have been thrown at China related to its ability to innovate. One of them is that China's education system is largely built around rote memorization, brutal exams, and a reward system for faculty and students that tends to kill passion and creativity. The argument is that China doesn't produce so many great innovators because their traditional education system kicks the creativity right out of them.
2: Well, the education system in China was often blamed to kill initiatives and creativity. And I have to admit that to some extent it did. I mean, the, the, the education system doesn't really favor creativity, especially for the, let's say the, the genius great idea or kind of revolutionary idea. But at the same time, I realized, you know, the innovation is, is more just about think big or having great ideas. You need thousands of, if not millions of engineers, designers to support your great ideas.
1: For quite a long time, doing well in school and following a traditional path through the education system was more important than being innovative or creative. The reason for this can be explained in part by China's one-child policy. Lu Lushan draws on a personal story of growing up in China in the 1990s.
2: When I was a child, so my parents always encouraged me to study hard in order to go to a better school or better university, because to them, studying could be the only path to success. And in the generation of my parents, only a small uh, percentage of, of them had the chance to go to school, not to mention you know college or universities. Like my father, who could have continued his study in high school, but in the end, he had to quit because his family cannot afford him. And he had to, you know, earn money to brought up his younger siblings. By the way, my father has seven siblings, which is very typical at his generation. So he has expectations on me, uh, on something that he cannot really have done. But then in my generation, you know, to to study in a university is, is not as difficult as it used to be. And often people in my age, as the only child, in the family because of the one child policy. So we don't have to think too much about to give back to the family at the younger age. And we also see success could be explained in different ways. Though I think today working hard is still our culture.
1: The education system in China is evolving along with everything else. Universities are becoming more open, more international and more entrepreneurial. Specific programs in entrepreneurship and innovation didn't even exist in China until 2002, when the Ministry of Education initiated a pilot project at nine prestigious universities. Since then, it has blossomed, so that it is included in many courses of study today, particularly in business, computer science, and engineering. A second criticism of China's ability to innovate is linked to the active role of the Chinese government in many aspects of society, including the world of business. Lu Lushan has a point of view on this as well, one that stems from the fact that the Communist Party in China has a huge influence over the country's citizens.
2: You know, I, 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 I just googled it, and uh, till today there were over 90 million party members in China. That's a huge group. And I think, you know, in China, it's, it's unlikely to ignore their roles in the corporate world. I think, you know, for the SMEs, such effect could be, like, it's not really significant. But in, in big firms, it could definitely take a role on that. To me, in the state-owned enterprises, especially those monopoly state-owned enterprises, there still exists lots of efficiency problem. Not to mention innovation, definitely it's kind of hinder. But in the private sector, I don't think government is really killing innovation because, you know, the Chinese government right now, they consider innovation to be a key driver of the future growth. And they want to make the transit from made in China to create in China, right? So, so the Chinese government right now, they are trying to build this, this innovation-driven society.
1: It's official Chinese policy to shift the focus from made in China to create in China, which is really another way of saying that China wants to focus more on innovation. And consequently, many of the barriers have been removed. While the Chinese government is setting up conditions for innovation, do Chinese companies have the right incentives to be innovative? An argument can be made that in the past, there really wasn't a big reward for innovation in China. This was due to two distinct factors. First, to the chagrin of Western governments, many foreign products and services were banned in China. Combine this with the relatively lax intellectual property regulations, and you get a lot of copying. Google, WhatsApp, Facebook, Twitter, and many other services were and effectively still are blocked in the country. So it was quite easy for Chinese firms to copy them and release them in the domestic market. Why bother going to the trouble of being innovative if you can lift and launch innovations from other countries? This was also the case for many manufactured goods. We've all seen examples of iPhones that aren't really iPhones and imitation Cartier watches. No one can deny that copying occurred. Tencent founder and CEO Pony Ma, China's second richest man, has been dubbed the king of copying even within China. But unlike watches or phones, copied software and services started to change
0: anyone in the United States or the West who comes up with a statement like this. Go ahead, look at Google, Amazon, and Facebook today and look at a screen capture of what they looked like 10 years ago, and you'll see that they're very similar. But if you look at what Alibaba can do, if you look at what WeChat can do, in a decade, the advancement of these apps to be super apps, To be things that do far more than they once did and are now far surpassing the Western internet companies and what they can do, it's really quite remarkable. So anybody who comes out with a statement like that, I know, has never really used any of these apps and obviously never lived in China. That was Richard Turin, author of
1: China's Digital Currency Revolution, being interviewed on Chinese television. He makes the point that while China's companies may not have been great at breakthrough innovation, they have excelled at incremental innovation. WeChat may have started out as a copy of WhatsApp. Even today, the brand images look similar. But that's where the similarities end. While WhatsApp has basically maintained its focus on communication, WeChat has become quite literally a super app that offers or facilitates anything from communication to gaming to payments to an almost unlimited number of everyday services. It's no exaggeration to say that WeChat has become an integral and necessary part of Chinese life. This takes us to the second reason that the incentive for Chinese firms to innovate in the past was quite low. In the boom years of China's growth, the copy and improve model made a lot of sense. You can think of Western commerce as like a game of chess where the winners carefully manage their resources, adopt long-term strategies, and thoughtfully consider their next moves. In China, at least in the boom years of the 1990s and first decade of the 2000s, it was more like a game of go. To win in go, you need to capture as much territory as possible. It's a race for real estate where scale wins. The domestic market in China was expanding incredibly quickly from a base that was so low that there was a huge dividend for companies that could establish the biggest reach in the shortest time. The demand was such that even lower quality copied products and services found a market. You could take time to innovate, but by the time you were finished, the market had been taken
3: over by someone else. It's really important to realize that China's private sector, you know—the the sector that is innovating, He's only 40 years old. It's like a generation. That's Mark
1: Grieven, IMD professor of innovation and strategy and author of a number of books on China. Although of European origin, he lived in China for many years and
3: speaks the language fluently. So 40 years ago, there were basically no companies, if you think about it. So so obviously in the first years, they were pretty much like catching up. And, and then you know we saw a lot and a lot of copying because that was efficient and it was the best way to catch up at that time. But now we are in a phase where there's still copycats. I mean, don't get me wrong, but there's also a lot of pioneering innovators and in a lot of pioneering fields. Mark told me about a time
1: he spoke to one of China's leading entrepreneurs about this, and he got a surprising reply. I
3: I still remember that I asked uh, Jack Ma, the, the, the guy from Alibaba, I said, wow, you know, your company is so radically innovative. And then he corrected me. He says, we're not. Alibaba is not radically innovative. We are just, you know, making a lot, a lot of really small little steps and then, you know, put together, they you know, become very you know, powerful and impactful.
1: Chinese firms have become exceptionally good at incremental innovation. It's a skill that they've honed through the boom years where scale and speed mattered more than having a clear or long-term strategy. They didn't need radical innovation because they could get there a different way. Through the cumulative effect of hundreds or thousands of very small innovations, just like a river can change a landscape over millions of years, little by little. Except in China, this all happens super fast. They've perfected something that's really remarkable. The process of achieving breakthrough results without breakthrough innovation. But when people claim that Chinese firms aren't innovative, they're not talking about incremental innovation, even if it is super fast they're mostly talking about radical innovation, like building the internet or producing an iPad, some kind of never-before-seen product or service. Earlier, Jai Lushan acknowledged that this type of innovation was never at the core of China's economic growth story. But is it still the case today? Have Chinese organizations figured
3: out how to become breakthrough innovators? Mark Grieven sees it this way. We did a survey in 2020 on Chinese innovation, and... We actually looked there at, you know, how incremental or not incremental and radical uh, Chinese companies innovate compared to other economies and other markets. And we actually find out that there is no evidence whatsoever that Chinese firms are more focused at incremental innovation or even that they do not leverage radical or breakthrough innovations for, for competitive advantage. In fact, it's actually exactly the same percentage of importance for a competitive advantage of a chinese firm versus a global innovator so so I, I think there's plenty of evidence that we see a lot of radical and breakthrough innovations also in china i always like the example of a company in beijing called the boe technology so they make oled displays this company uh is a, is a little bit older huh? and old in china you talk about you know 20 30 years right and they started, indeed, with, you know, working with foreign technology. You know, they work with Japanese and Korean display technology. But by now, over time, they not only caught up, they actually start now to become one of the leading innovators when it comes to LED technology. And they're actually amongst the top patent uh, suppliers in, in the world. So this is an, an example of a, a company that really went from relying on foreign technology to now actually be becoming themselves a really, you know, breakthrough radical innovator.
1: It turns out that there are plenty of examples today of Chinese firms that are not only innovating incrementally, but also coming up with new radical types of innovation. So that's it then. We've resolved the question posed at the start of the episode. Chinese firms have moved far beyond imitation into the realm of innovation both in their ability to iterate quickly and incrementally and also in their ability to come up with new radical types of innovation. But there's more. Chinese firms are not satisfied equaling the types of innovation perfected by Western companies. They want to take it further. And this is where it gets really interesting. Just as WeChat has far surpassed the capabilities of WhatsApp, Chinese innovation is aiming to move beyond the West with new, more effective ways to innovate. Here's Kai-Fu Lee, best-selling author and former head of Google China. You may have encountered him from our
4: episode on the impact of AI on employment. In the age of AI, I often talk about data is the new oil and China is the new Saudi Arabia. (laughs) So China has all the data, not only more people, but more depth because so many services are digitized. Uh, you're riding a shared bicycle, ordering food, and so on and so forth, so a lot of data. China has entrepreneurs, and AI gets better with data. So the entrepreneur process is you start with an idea, you try it out, uh, if it doesn't work, you pivot. But with AI, you pivot with the data. So if it works, you, got, you get more data. Then it works better, you get even more data. So that's what happened with the long example I gave. right? First, they have some handwritten rules that had 20% default rate, lost a bunch of money. Then they trained a system that had 15% default rate, lost a bunch more money. Then they trained up another system based on that data, then it has 10% default rate. And now the default rate is 3%. And now it's making massive money. And it comes from iteration of not only the product to be a better um, user fit, um, but also the gathering, iterative gathering of data to make the AI more robust.
1: Kai-Fu Li describes a new approach to innovation that is based around three key elements. Data, fast iteration, and customer engagement. These are hard to replicate outside of China. We don't have the same access to data, due in part to the strong privacy legislation in many parts of the world. We're not as digital in our daily lives, nor do we have a single market of a billion people to learn from. We also don't have a history of building a capacity for speed and iteration. And despite what we may tell ourselves, by and large, we're not very customer centric. Mark Grieven has done a lot of work trying to understand the new directions that Chinese companies have taken on innovation. We find
3: strong evidence that the way that companies innovate in China is significantly structurally different from the way companies innovate in other parts of the world. The key difference is in fact that Chinese companies rely a lot on what we call market-led innovation, depending and being very close to the customer, innovating together with the customer more, innovating together with competitors more than anywhere else in the world. So it's a recipe that's been there now for a while and it's not gonna go away. And and the, and the real evidence there is that now foreign firms in China are starting to adopt the Chinese approach to innovation. For the chinese market because it's the only way to win in that context
1: i asked him to elaborate on what he meant by market-led innovation because it sounded quite familiar to me if you take a close look at western innovation methodologies like design thinking or lean startup they also talk about the importance of fast iteration and incorporating customer feedback how is this any different to what's happening in china
3: so the, the the key difference is indeed like is the Innovation led by technology developed in in R and D centers and then kind of pushed to customers, or is it led by you know almost like the size of the price in China is very big, right? So there, there's a, there's a, a lot of market opportunity there. It also makes it really difficult because there's a lot of competition. So actually, innovations are led and driven by customer needs, and not only by customer needs in the sense of how we define that in you know uh, customer centricity, but in fact driven by Working with customers, working with competitors, working with, let's say, external partners to actually get to this this innovation, which which makes it, therefore, much more close to to the market than you find in in any other place in the world.
1: Let's hear from one of these external partners. Frank Vivier is the chief transformation officer of Richemont, a holding company for many of the world's most respected luxury brands, such as Cartier, Van Cleef & Arpel, Mont Blanc, and IWC. Richemont and its brands have been operating in China for decades and recently entered into a global joint venture with Alibaba. The stakes are extremely high. China is predicted to account for almost 50% of global luxury spending by 2025. I asked him if he thought Chinese companies imitate or innovate.
0: I have two very rapid responses that come to mind. The first is that We have been in China as a company with our brands for over 30 years. And I think it's fair to say that we encountered probably one of the most significant issues in our industry, the luxury industry, related to counterfeiting, fakes, copying, anything you imagine. To the extent that when the Chinese government encountered this massive fraud where their own citizens were copying their own uh, emblems and intellectual property around the Olympic Games, they kind of woke up, and you know, we really have to accelerate this. And we've seen subsequently a massive shift in the thinking of the Chinese government, because for those that don't know, the reason that uh, this has been so rife and pervasive in China is because They believe it's part of their philosophy that comes uh, from ancient times that one single individual can't own an idea. You have to spread it. So the fact that you own an idea, it goes against their communist philosophy, which is now being discarded. So over the last 12 odd years, we've seen a tremendous effort from the Chinese authorities, and Chinese companies to be a lot more not just cautious but proactive to help protect intellectual property. And it's a big industry, so you're never gonna kill it off. But we have never encountered in recent times issues with regard to our products, our business, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera.
1: Intellectual property protections, little evidence of copying. That's perhaps surprising for a luxury goods group. But what about evidence of innovation?
0: We have, over the last two and a half years, worked extremely hard as a partner to Alibaba to really get to know them, understand how it works, etc. And we've discovered a fascinating thing about not just Alibaba, but the digital economy in China, which we today consider to be the most innovative that we've encountered globally. And we are in a lot of markets and we spend a lot of money going to places like Silicon Valley, and we consider not only the digital economy aspects that Alibaba forms a central pillar to, but specifically the whole of Alibaba's business model is extremely innovative.
1: We've already heard about how speed plays a massive role in the Chinese approach to innovation, along with data management and customer centricity. But what is it really like to work with one of these companies on a daily basis?
0: I think it's both exhilarating and quite scary when you first encounter them. The key is for us that initially, the speed at which they move and the speed with which their machine is extremely well organized, the methodology is very clear. So when you engage this ecosystem, it's quite regimented. You have to be very, very clear about what's my strategy? What is the outcome or the end game for me with this campaign, this event? Everything is measured. Data is everything in the company. And when they introduce themselves to you, they say, we are not an e-commerce company. We're a data company. It's all about the data. So if you arrive there on the doorstep and you do not have a data supported strategy with a clear end game, with clear metrics, you can't play. They basically say you're not ready. It's not a question of maturity. You are not organized enough to be able to do it because the level of aggregation is immense. I mean, their platform has over 850 million customers, and if you don't know how to drink from that firehouse and do it productively, you're gonna lose money.
1: One of the biggest challenges I encounter working with firms outside of China, in the Americas, in Europe, in Japan, and across other parts of the world, is how to build a culture of innovation how to set up the organization in such a way that innovation and creativity are encouraged and good ideas are not killed or watered down along the way. Business writer Gary Hamill likes to say that corporations are awash with ideas that generally fall into two buckets, incremental no-brainers and flaky no-hopers. I was curious to learn how Chinese companies build innovation into their cultures.
0: What I find different there is that people want to carve out an ability to become an entrepreneur. It's very entrepreneurial. It's, it, it really fosters innovation, mistakes. They don't have, for instance, a research and development function. They don't know why companies have that. And when we challenge them or ask them, why don't you guys have an R&D department? They say, we don't have time to spend money with a section of an organization that has no p and or customer responsibility. So for us, R&D happens on the job. We want people to fail. Now, you know, we all say this in our manifestos and mission statements all over the world. These guys do it. They go away. And as I said, they often have com- competing businesses with an end game and goal, but they're not wasteful. It's not as if they just bang up against one another. It's the classical case of creative destruction or creative tension in organization. And these entrepreneurial teams very rapidly come up with something and then they switch from competitive mode to collaborative mode with the customer in mind. So they're extremely customer focused. Everything is about the customer and there's a competition for ideas across the company. You don't have this mentality, okay, here are the kind of the innovative part of the business and here's the back office or the admin or the, you know, whatever. Everybody, everywhere is part of a value chain that's constantly renovating, innovating itself. Now, if you want to have a slice of that cake and you can't execute at scale, at speed, you don't survive. And we love working with companies that can do that because that teaches us an immense amount about how to survive in this extremely disruptive digital age. This
1: sounds a little scary and a real switch from the past when Chinese firms work hard to emulate Western organizations. Today, the shoe is clearly on the other foot when one of the most traditional and established companies in the Western world, with brands that are literally hundreds of years old, is looking to China for inspiration for the future. I asked China expert Mark Grieven if non-Chinese firms should be worried about Chinese innovation in the future, not just in the Chinese market, but everywhere.
3: Of course, if you're not worried now, I mean, um, it's going to be really scary. I mean, the reality is, I mean, we tell ourselves that Chinese firms are not able to scale abroad. And, and that's partly because of the, the message that we see in the global media and, and, and certain publications. But the reality is there's lots of companies from China very successful internationally. Sani in, in construction, higher, of course, Xiaomi, 40% of Xiaomi's sales is outside of China. Uh lens technology, you know, they make the glass for smartphones. They have a 60% global market share. So clearly, this is already happening. And, and, and I think we should realize that. And and I think there's reason for you know foreign executives to, well, on the one hand, be worried because well, obviously there is more already, and there's a lot more to come. But also cheerful because you know it's it, it's it's great, right? If you have companies with really nice technologies and innovations, I mean, that means there's great partners, there's great opportunities to collaborate. And I always like you know the example of Daimler. I think it was last year in January they collaborated with uh, Geely. And and guess what? What brings Daimler to the table? Design capability and brand. What does Geely bring to the table? The Chinese company, R and D capability and design of manufacturing processes. So so it's it's really interesting. And there's a great opportunity there.
1: If you're still not convinced about China's ability to innovate, then just look at its response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Within a few weeks of the lockdown in Wuhan, a thousand-bed hospital had been built and was treating patients. Touchless food delivery had been set up, medical services had moved online, and remote work technologies had been significantly upgraded. But that's just speed. Chinese companies also found ways to innovate. Live streaming, a fresh twist on e-commerce, was widely adopted by retailers. Groceries were being loaded onto cars while they were being filled up at gas stations. Apps supporting community bulk buying were being used in neighborhoods across the country. Other apps were being developed to live track the spread of the virus and provide advice, treatments, and all manner of services. Workers at negatively impacted organizations like restaurants and cinemas were being loaned to overwork segments like grocery stores and logistics companies in shared labor agreements. There is a reason that China was the only large economy to register economic growth in 2020, despite seeing a contraction of 7% in the first quarter. In summary, the days of Chinese companies being followers are long gone. They are fast becoming innovation leaders with a distinctly Chinese flavor of innovation that is hard to replicate. It works pretty well in China. Just witness the struggles that Western firms have had competing there. And as the Chinese market continues to mature and growth slows, it's inevitable that Chinese firms will look overseas for growth even more so than they are doing today. But this isn't a scary story of world domination. We can learn from Chinese innovation just as they learn from us. We can collaborate with them just as Richemont and Daimler have done. The 21st century may be Asian, but that doesn't mean that the rest of the world is going to be left behind. When it comes to commerce, unlike what we heard from Mike Pompeo at the start of the episode, China is not the great enemy, it's the great opportunity. You've been listening to Management Under the Microscope, written and presented by me, Michael Wade, and produced by Pete Naughton. We're a production of the IMD Business School in Lausanne, Switzerland, one of the world's leading providers of insights and education for executives. To find out more about the school and to read our new magazine, I by IMD, which has pieces on everything from the future of sport to the science of navigating workplace relationships, follow the links in the show notes of this episode. Next week, we'll be putting another common assumption under the microscope, the idea that successful entrepreneurs have a higher tolerance for risk than the rest of us. To see if this myth holds up to reality, we'll speak to experts from academia and business, we'll delve into the story of a certain long-haired British entrepreneur, and we'll reveal some recent findings about entrepreneurship that may surprise you. Be sure to subscribe and hear it as soon as it comes out. If you're enjoying this show and you can think of someone else who might like it, please tell them. It may sound trivial, but word of mouth remains one of the most common ways for people to discover new podcasts. And we'd love it for ours to reach as many ears as possible. Thanks for listening. And I hope you can join us for the next edition of Management Under the Microscope.